This evening we're going to consider Genesis chapter 34, Shishem's rape of Dinah. Shishem's rape of Dinah. If you take a look at the last verse of chapter 33, the last verse there, you'll see the name Elohi Israel. Look at that last verse there. And he, that's Jacob, erected there an altar and called it Elohi Israel, which means the mighty God of Israel. And then in the first verse of chapter 35, God is again mentioned. See verse 1 of 35. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel. However, in the chapter separating those two verses, God is not mentioned even once. That's not to say that chapter 34 is not God-breathed, it's not divinely inspired or anything like that, or that God, who had promised that he would not leave Jacob, had somehow broken his promise and had gone absent. But what it does speak of is a land rather like the one that we live in, that had forsaken God, as we shall see. It was a pagan land in which the inhabitants, including the leaders, the ruling class, did as they pleased. Chapter 33 ended with Jacob pitching his tent in Shechem upon his return to the promised land of Canaan. And now... In chapter 34, what we shall consider is Jacob's only daughter, Dinah, going out to see the daughters of Shechem. Things went horribly wrong for Dinah when she was raped by a man whose name was Shechem. He was the son of Hamor, the Hivite, and he and Shechem was a prince of the land, the land that had the same name as him. In an act of vengeful violence, what What happened, what followed rather, was the slaughter of all the males in Shechem by Dinah's two brothers, Simeon and Levi. First of all, we'll consider living in a fallen world. Look again at chapter 34, verses 1 through to 3. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. As we've progressed through the book of Genesis, real life examples have been presented of Total depravity, the total depravity of man. Ever since the unthinkable happened and sin entered the world by one man, Adam, and death by sin. We've seen Adam's son, Cain, murdering his younger brother, Abel. We've seen that during Noah's time, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt. 
for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. In fact, things had become so bad that the Lord destroyed everyone in a flood, apart from Noah and his family. Then there was that episode when the men of Sodom wanted to have sex with two heavenly visitors who were in Lot's house. Lot, he was the nephew of Abraham. The men, the men of the city called out to Lot saying, bring them out unto us that we may know them. Coming back to our passage, chapter 34 starts with Dinah, who was probably in her early teens, going out to see the daughters of the land and then being raped by Shechem. There's no justification for what Shechem did, even though we're told in verse 3 that he loved her and even though he spoke kindly unto her and even though he desired to take her to be his wife. The fact still remains that he took her by force and he violated her. However, having said that, you'd have to question the wisdom of Dinah's parents, Jacob and Leah, for allowing their daughter to go out unaccompanied in the first place in that pagan land. As Charles Simeon said, Dinah like other young people, wish to see and be seen, and on some festive occasion went to visit the daughters of the land of Canaan. She would probably have been displeased if her mother had imposed restraints upon her. But it was her parents' duty to consult, not so much her inclination as her safety. And it was highly blamable in Leah to suffer her daughter, scarcely 15 years of age, to go into scenes of gaiety and dissipation, unprotected and unwatched. Simeon said those words about 200 years ago. Even so, how how apt a comment that is for the day that we live in. And it will continue to be apt right up until the Lord Jesus Christ returns in judgment and he brings this depraved world to an end. It's every parent's nightmare and it's every parent's argument, or most parents at any rate, their argument with their daughters when they concern for their safety and uh, the the daughters want to go out and, and meet up with their friends and so on. It's dangerous out there. Certainly where I, the big city that I come from, it's, it's so dangerous that certain parts of that big city, London, I think you could almost guarantee that a young, a young girl out on her own is going to meet with trouble. This is the age we live in. But I know that even on this land, this island home of ours, there's trouble out there for, for young unaccompanied females. This is the, this is the times we live in and not just now. This is how it's been ever since sin entered the world. It's a very wicked world. A world that has turned its back on God. Very dangerous world that we live in. Let's have a look at the response of Dinah's brothers to their sister being raped. Look at verse 7. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and they were very wroth because he had wrought folly in Israel 
in line with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. Shechem said to his father Hamor, the prince of the land, get me this damsel to wife. I don't know, I I, I don't want to read too much into this, but he sounds like a sport brat to me. Just says to his father, get me this damsel to wife. Consequently, Hamor went to Jacob to commune with him and to ask him for permission for his son Shechem to take Jacob's daughter to be his wife. Also involved in the negotiations were Dinah's brothers, by brothers I mean her brothers and her half-brothers, who had been out in the field tending to the cattle when the rape occurred. Needless to say, they were very, they were vexed, they were very angry when they heard what had happened to their sister. That sure made for interesting negotiations when Shechem and his father Hamor came to negotiate. It would seem that they kept their call as Hamor suggested that there be marriages between Jacob's people and the Canaanites. As I was reading that, I was thinking, well, that's something that was never going to happen anyway. The Lord was protecting that people, the the the, um, the, the physical descendants of Abraham, Jacob's, uh, dis- Jacob's family there. They were the patriarchs of the children of Israel, from whence came the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, there was never really any uh, question of... Jacob's sons intermarrying with those pagans. Also, Shechem the rapist very generously said to Jacob and to his sons, let me find grace in your eyes and what ye shall say unto me, I will give. Ask me never so much dowry. Dowry, that's a purchase price for a bride. Yeah, they still have dowries in certain parts of the world. In India, they still have dowries. So, ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me. But give me the damsel to wife. Dinah's brothers agreed to give Dinah to Shechem in marriage, and they also agreed to Hamor's proposal to intermarry with the Canaanites, and to become one people. They agreed to these things. However, if you look at verse 13 there, and the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, deceitfully. They answered deceitfully. When they, when they said unto them in verses 14 through to 17, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will, you, will we consent unto you, if ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised. Then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we'll, we will become one people. But... If ye will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then will we take our daughter and we will be gone. We're told there that they were speaking deceitfully to Shechem and to his father Hamor. 
Anyway, Hamar, Hamar and Shechem agreed to the terms and what followed was that all of the men of the city were circumcised. Whilst the men were still sore from their, uh, their surgical procedure, Simeon and Levi, who had the same mother as Dinah, their mother was Leah, the wife of Jacob, those two brothers, Simeon and Levi, killed all of the males with the sword while they were getting over their surgery. <coughs> Therefore, not only Shechem, but the entire male population, it would seem, paid the price for, for Shechem's defilement of their sister, Dinah. Various things can be said about the actions of Simeon and Levi. In fairness to them, I don't suppose that there was a local police station where they could have pressed charges for rape by a prince of that city against their sister. And even nowadays with police stations, uh, even though there are police stations, uh, there is another, the, 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 the ruling class are a law unto themselves. But anyway, back then there, there would have not have been any um, thing that they could do about it legally. Even so, that did not excuse them from committing such vindictive violence. Even their father was deeply grieved with what they had done and he was concerned about the possible repercussions. For example, look at verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, Ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. About 40 years later, in chapter 49, Jacob spoke to all his sons before he died. And what he said to Simeon and Levi showed that their actions in Shechem still troubled him greatly. In chapter 49, verses 5 through to 7, Jacob spoke to them very harshly, even pronouncing a curse upon them when he said, Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honour, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Of that verse, the Bible commentator John Gill said, their anger was sinful in the nature of it, and so criminal and detestable it was strong, fierce and furious in its operation and effects, and so justly cursed, not their persons but their passions and their wrath, for it was cruel. It issued in the cruel and barbarous slaughter of the inhabitants of Shechem. The same thing as before, in other words repeated, to express his great abhorrence of their wrath and rage. 
very strong words from Jacob in chapter 49, even pronouncing a curse on his sons, uh, Simeon and Levi, and very strong words from the Bible commentator, John Gill. Clearly, Jacob was troubled by the actions of his son Simeon and Levi for the remainder of his life, which was about another 40 years. Despite uh, Simeon and Levi having committed mass murder, which far outweighed the wickedness that had been committed by one man against their sister, as terrible as that was, taking nothing away from it, they justified their actions when their father expressed his grave concerns about the possible repercussions. And all they could say to him in chapter 34, the last verse there was... Should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? Can you see, there was no remorse from them. They'd slaughtered the male population. No remorse, no apology for the problems that they had caused. Also, perhaps I'm not the only one in detecting a degree of indignation and disrespect towards their father in the words that they said there. The other brothers were far from blameless in that sorry saga. According to verses 27 through to 29, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep, their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives they took captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. It's interesting to note there in verse 29 that the wives were taken captive by the sons of Jacob. The wives of all the men that had been slain were taken captive. You'd have to wonder if those grieving widows had anything to say in the matter. I shouldn't think so. Also, not to be overlooked, is the profanation and the cheapening by the sons of Jacob of that sacred ordinance, circumcision, which was given by God to their great-grandfather Abraham and to all his male descendants as a sign and a seal of the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham. In much the same way that baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant promises that we receive by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They really shouldn't have employed that um, circumcision, that ordinance that God had given um, to them, that sign and seal of the covenant relationship that God had with them. They shouldn't have employed that in in their deception. We have some applications here. If we fast forward from that sorry saga in in Genesis 34, if we go forward in time about 2,000 years to when the Lord Jesus Christ was in the world, Jesus said, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Clearly, nothing 
had changed for the better when Jesus was in the world. The heart condition of man was still one of being totally depraved when Jesus was in the world. I've already mentioned Cain, the son of um, Adam, slaying his brother Abel. What happened in the time of Noah? The 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 every imagination of the thoughts of men's hearts was continually evil. The whole earth was filled with violence in the time of Noah. I've mentioned what it was like in Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen what was happening in Shechem. And when Jesus was in the world, nothing had changed. The heart condition of man was still totally depraved. Also, the Apostle Paul said, There is none righteous, no, not one. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre, open tomb. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those words came from the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Romans. What about now? Let's move on another 2,000 years to now. Is it, is it better now? Uh, I was speaking to a fellow pastor this afternoon. I, I didn't listen too hard, too carefully to the numbers because you, you can take it with a pinch of salt. But he was talking about the number of babies that are slaughtered annually in the world. It's huge. It's colossal. Innocent blood being shed every year in this world. So is anything any better now? Even if you are the most mild-mannered, self-controlled person in the community that you live in, I'm, I, I, would, I have to tell you that your heart is nevertheless deceitful above all things. And of course, I speak about my own heart as well. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The wickedness of the hearts of other people is evident to all of us, isn't it? We can so easily see the wickedness of other people's hearts um, when it, that wickedness is acted out in the things that they say, the things that we do, they do, not we do, but they do. But all too often, we don't see our own sins, do we? We can see the sins of others, terrible sins at times, but we seem to be blinded to our own sins. Even on those occasions when our own sins far outweigh the sins of others, as did the sins of Jacob's sons, far outweigh Shechem's sins. Such is the deceitfulness of our own hearts that all too often we are blind to our own sins and very, very good at uh, justifying ourselves whilst we condemn others and judge others. 
The sons of Jacob, by their actions, showed themselves to be every bit as depraved as Shechem, and none of us need imagine that we are made of better stuff than Dinah's brothers or Shechem. And if you're a Christian in here, I trust you will realise that Jesus did not, that you're not a Christian because you're somehow a cut above the rest. That's not how it works. It is by grace we are saved, through faith. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about two men in the temple. One was a Pharisee, the other one was a tax collector. I've talked about those two recently, haven't I? The Pharisee prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. As for the tax collector, he would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, maybe, and probably, that Pharisee did live a much more moral life than most people, and uh, a much more moral life than the tax collector, at least outwardly at any rate. He was probably very diligent to keep the law, but whilst he was busy accusing the tax collector before God, God was looking at that Pharisee's deceitful, wicked and unrepentant heart, and it was not the, not the, um, not the Pharisee, but the tax collector who went home justified, so the Lord Jesus Christ tells us. We've seen some extreme vengeance in chapter 34 of Genesis, which has served to expose the wickedness of the people who exacted revenge as much as, if not more, than Shechem, the rapist. Can you see what I'm getting at now? I mean, we're appalled with what Shechem did. But just look at what those brothers did. The revenge. It was a slaughter. The Bible has something very solemn to say on the subject of vengeance. Not vengeance at the hands of wicked men, but by the Lord Jesus Christ, who having once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, is coming again and he's coming in judgment, having risen from the dead. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 to 9, it is written, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So that's interesting, isn't it? The vengeance that the Lord Jesus Christ will exact upon people. What is the great sin there? That they know not God and they obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they leave the world having never repented of their sins and having never, whatever those sins may be, however terrible those sins may be. Or, or on the other, 
at the other extreme, how seemingly trivial those sins are. The big sin there is not having repented, not having had a change of mind, not having come to your senses, not having done what the tax collector did when he smote his breast and and could not even look up to heaven, but simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, leaving this world without having done those things. Jesus will have vengeance on such people and they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Can you appreciate just how serious these verses are? Serious enough for you to stop denying or making excuses for the wickedness of your own heart. This is something we do. A heart that is seen into by the all-knowing God, even when your depravity is not made manifest in the things that you say and the things you do. In other words, when you do a really good job of hiding that depravity from everyone else. Even so, everything is laid bare before the Lord. God sees it all. We can hide nothing from God. The good news is that at the cross, the iniquity or the depravity of the hearts of all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ was laid upon him when he bare their sins in his own body at the cross. The fact is that Jesus sacrificially laid down his life. For who? For people who've never done anything wrong? Of course not. For people, Jesus. think about Jesus being nailed to a cross, lifted up to die. The just for the unjust. Bearing the curse of a broken law upon himself. Drinking the cup of sin. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Whoever they might be. The fact is that Jesus sacrificially laid down his life for people whose hearts are every bit as depraved as Shechem's heart, the rapist. Every bit as depraved as the hearts of Dinah's vengeful brothers. Therefore, repent, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your acceptance before a holy and righteous God. Amen.